We're still in John. I've changed the slide a little. Uh, we're in the second half of John. Uh, really, the whole, the message became flesh, I think, applies to the whole book. But uh, kind of the emphasis as we turn our attention with Jesus talking to his disciples in the second half of the gospel, I think a writing theme through the end of the book is this idea of staying put in Jesus, uh, setting up our residence in him. Uh, so uh, that's the cause for the, the abide, uh, and you'll be seeing a lot of that uh, in the coming months. Have you ever lived in a dangerous neighborhood? You know the kind I'm talking about, where you're uh, afraid to go walking around at night, where you're sometimes huddled, hoping that gunfire outside won't penetrate the walls. You know, the kind of neighborhood where all the windows have bars on them, um, I don't know, some of you may have lived in a place like that at some point in your life. Jesus had words to say about living in a secure place, and that's what we're going to talk about today, this place that would free us from any need to be troubled or afraid. We're in John chapter 14. I've titled the message today, The Way to the Father's Home. Let's start with verse 1. Do not allow your heart to be troubled. You have faith in God, have faith also in me. You might wonder why Jesus is saying this, but if you were here last week, you heard uh, what Jesus said immediately before this. And he's just, he's sitting at the table with his 12 disciples, and he just told them, one of you is going to hand me over to my enemies. One of you is going to betray me. And they're all like, that's impossible. We're your 12 most uh, trusted. Uh, we're the inner circle of your closest friends and disciples. And none of us would do that. But of course, Jesus was right. And G Judas runs off to, to arrange his arrest that evening. He also tells them, I'm going someplace and you guys cannot come. I'm telling you the exact same thing I told to the religious leaders who reject me completely and had been fighting against me. I'm going to a place you can't come. I'm telling you the same thing. I'm going somewhere you can't come. And when Peter protests, Jesus says, you know, before the night is out, you are going to deny that you even know me three times. I can see that all of this might cause some consternation in the disciples, right? Some concern. Not only is Jesus leaving, but he's about to be betrayed. He's saying that they're all going to fail him, and they don't think they're going to, but what is going on? And Jesus is talking. This is farewell speech material, right? This is, I'm gone, and you can't come, and this is goodbye, folks. They have left everything to follow Jesus, and now it feels like everything is falling apart. And yeah, their heart is troubled. They are deeply concerned about the things Jesus has just said to them, so he tells them this. Don't allow your heart to be troubled. I, every time you read the word heart in the Bible, I want you to, to get this in your mind. Don't think Valentine's Day. Don't think Cupid's arrow. Don't think rom-com. When you read heart in the Bible, think Braveheart. 
because that's the way the term is used in the Bible. In, in the Bible, in the ancient Near East, the center of emotions was not the heart, it was the gut. So if you want to talk about intense emotion, you talk about the gut. When you talk about the heart, you're talking about kind of the, the core of who you are, where will resides, where your determination and what you are and the truest form of who you are resides. That's the heart. The core of who you are. And Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about. In the very core of who you are, don't let yourself be governed by fear. That command is found throughout the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, over and over, God tells people, do not fear. I am with you. That promise is found over and over. And the command to not allow trouble or fear to take over our lives is found over and over again. And that's great. But how do we do this? Nobody likes to be afraid. Nobody likes to be in distress. We'd love to be greatly at peace about everything, but it's just not happening a lot of the times. Well, Jesus tells us what has to happen for us to be able to accomplish this of not allowing our hearts to be troubled. You have faith in God. So he lets them know, you already have the first bit of what you need. You have trusted God. And here's where trusting in God makes all the difference in the world. Because in life, the things that cause us uh, to have a troubled heart are the things we do not control. And how many things like that are out there? They're innumerable. I don't even control my own health. I mean, I could exercise every day. I could watch what I eat. And I could still drop dead from an aneurysm tomorrow. I don't control it. I have some measure of affecting something, but it's, there are things that are completely out of my control. I don't control the world. I can even go into the voting booth and vote, but I don't get to decide who's president. I don't get to decide how the whole uh, world is, is working. It's all, all beyond my control. And these things cause us a lot of fear because what if things I don't control mess up my life? What if situations happen that I can't, I can't deal with them? Well, that's where putting our faith in God makes all the difference because guess who doesn't have that problem? God. There is nothing outside of God's control. There is no situation he is not equipped to address and deal with. There's no knowledge he lacks. He knows everything from the end to the beginning. He uh, can access all of time all at once and has perfect knowledge of everything. There is nothing God does not know, nothing God cannot do. So it makes sense if you want to put your trust in something reliable, God is that something. Actually, he's a someone. God is not a thing. He is the ultimate person. The only reason there exists such things as persons is that God himself is a person and has created persons. 
So he says, you have faith in God. And I'm thinking all the way back in Israel's history, a couple of thousand years of history, since God called Israel out of slavery in Egypt, uh, maybe 18 or 1500 years, but called them out of slavery in Egypt and uh, entered into this relationship with them. For hundreds, over a thousand years, the people of Israel have been putting their trust in the God who called them out. And God has come through. There are other nations who have disappeared in the sands of time. Uh, you know, the Philistines and the Edomites and the Ammonites and all these things we read about in the Bible, those guys are dead and gone and long, cultures long dissipated into the sands of history. But God kept his people, Israel, through it all. So they've come into this. You have faith in God. That is how your forefathers faced troubling things. They put their trust not in what they can control, but in the God who is in control. You have faith in God. And here's the new twist he adds. Have faith also in me. I'll tell you, that is something no other prophet ever said. Moses never said to the people of Israel, have faith in God, have faith also in me. Elijah never told anybody that. Isaiah never said that. Jeremiah never said There's not a single person in the Bible other than Jesus who ever said this. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. Now, the reason people don't say that is that we're not worthy of that. I'm not going to ask you to have faith in me. I'm just as messed up as you are. I control about as much in this world as you do. I'm no help to you. Don't put your faith in me. The reason Jesus says this is the thing John has been telling us from the beginning of his gospel. Jesus is not just some guy. God saw our plight. He saw our situation. He saw how fear governs our existence because we cannot control it and sin is destroying, eating away every corner of our lives. And everything is constantly falling apart. And our, our hearts are gripped by that fear. And God said, I'm going to do something about it. I will come into my creation. I will take on flesh. And I will become the perfect solution to the problem. I know that what we call this problem that is throughout all creation, the Bible gives it a name, sin. It basically is anything that is not as it should be. You say, that's not right. Well, that's what we're talking about when we talk about sin. Things that are not right. How do you fix a creation that is so plagued with what is not right? God said, oh, step in. And I will make payment with my life for the sins of the world. From the first man or woman to ever walk the earth to the end of time, I will deal with sin definitively by paying for it with my blood. So when Jesus says, you have faith in God 
And he adds, have faith also in me. He's not suggesting, and as we keep reading what Jesus is saying, it it will become very evident. He's not suggesting that you used to trust in God, now trust in me too. As though uh, we're somehow supplementing or, or adding a new God to our pantheon. What he's saying is, the God you have always trusted in is now giving you more to trust. The God you have always looked to has now revealed himself to you in a new way that broadens your understanding. And uh, I'm sure Jesus' disciples knew from the Old Testament and the witness of their uh, forefathers and from their own experience in lives of worship to Yahweh that God loves them and cares for them. But do you think their understanding of that was broadened in any way by the fact that God himself stripped down, tied a towel around his waist, grabbed a wash basin, basin, and got down on his knees to wash their feet and said, I have come to wash your feet. Jesus is God come to us to reveal to us who God is in a, in a broader way than we ever knew before. So yes, if your ancestors found confidence by trusting in God, by trusting in me, you guys have the added benefit that you know more about who God is than your ancestors did. When you put your trust in me, you are broadening, expanding your understanding of faith. And if, you're, if trusting in God was good enough for your ancestors, how much more now that I have revealed to you and I'm about to reveal to you powerfully as I hang on a cross and give my life for you. As I rise from the grave victorious over sin and death, how much more do you have cause to have confidence that you are putting your faith in the God who has done all of this? How do we chase away fear? We latch on to Jesus. We put our trust in him. Jesus offers himself as the answer to distress and fear. Why is it that we must trust in Jesus, not just God? And maybe as we keep working through this passage, that'll become apparent. Verse 2. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. (coughs) Jesus gives further reason for trust and for not allowing our heart to be overcome by fear and trouble. He starts talking about where we live, our place of residence. He says, you know, my father, and that's the way he referred to God the Father. Uh, and don't be confused. It's, it's confusing because God is so much more than we are. God is one God in three persons. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but not three gods. It is one God that exists eternally and is triune in nature. 
In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. That word there uh, is the idea of permanent places. Uh, it's unfortunate. I think uh, through the history of translation, some translations say mansions. But really, uh, it's the idea of, of an abode, a place where you can live permanently. <coughs> And perhaps what's in mind here in the Greco-Roman world of the time, you know, if you were a wealthy person, you'd have a, a, a large house, and maybe your son, as he grew up in your household, would add on to the house, would add some rooms onto that house, and everyone would stay in this uh, large villa that would be expanding to accommodate more sons and children. Maybe that's kind of the image that my father has this grand house and there are plenty of places for you to live in it. So I wouldn't tell you this if it weren't really what I'm up to. Would I have told you this if I'm not going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and I will take you to myself so that where I am you may be also. So even though Jesus just told him, I'm going somewhere you can't come, he's making it clear this is a momentary thing. I'm coming back and I'm taking you with me. There are at least two ways we can understand this. Probably the most common way it's understood is that Jesus is talking here about kind of eternity, right? That one day Jesus has promised he will return and there will be a final judgment and those who have trusted in him will be resurrected and granted immortal life with him and there will be new heavens and new earth so that creation itself is remade into perfection and we get to enjoy that eternally with him. And that somehow in this moment of remade creation, there's this mansion, this dwelling place of the Father that Jesus is working on preparing for us. I've heard this all my life, this idea that this is what Jesus is talking about. And I think that's part of what he's talking about, but maybe not all. As we look at the Gospel of John... Uh, if we look back a little bit, there's something kind of interesting there. If we go back to chapter 2 and the very start of Jesus' ministry, when he cleanses the temple and kicks out everybody who's buying and selling stuff there in the temple precincts, here's what he says. Do not make my father's house a house of market. This is in chapter 2, verse 16. And as the discussion continues in chapter 2 there, in verse 19, here's what Jesus tells everybody. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This house of the Father. Destroy it, and in three days I'll raise it up. And John explains what Jesus is talking to, talking about in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the fact that he is about to die on a cross. This temple uh, of the Father, this dwelling place of the Father on earth is about to be destroyed. But very quickly, he's going to be raised up again. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's also talking about what he's about to accomplish on the cross. And when he says, I'm coming again, he's talking about he's going to encounter them after the resurrection. And I'm going to take you to myself 
so that where I am, you may be also. Here's a, a thing in, in, in John's Gospel. Eternal life in John's Gospel is not just something that happens after we die. It's not just resurrection. Eternal life, abundant life in John's Gospel starts the moment we come to Jesus and trust our hearts to him. That's when life begins. So I think this double sense in this text is what we should be reading. That Jesus is saying, what I'm about to accomplish on the cross is I am making it so that you can live in the Father's house. This temple that's about to be destroyed and raised on the third day, this body of Jesus that is the temple of the Father on earth, when he ascends to heaven, what's his body going to look like here on earth? Isn't his body going to be composed of believers, people who have trusted their hearts to him, and Jesus has given the gift of the Holy Spirit so that God is dwelling in you? Is that not what we are? Are we not? We who have trusted our hearts to Jesus, are we not the house of God? His temple, his abiding place. Jesus says, I'm going to give my life so that you can take up residence in me. So that you can live in me. That's the way Paul describes our life as Christians. We are in Christ. So that we actually inhabit, we actually abide, we actually dwell in Christ. We are in the Father's house. Jesus at the cross was making room for us in God's house. How are we living in God's house right now? because of our faith in Jesus. Let's continue in verse 4. And you have known the way to where I am going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus tells him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is trying to comfort them and tell them, it's, you're in for a few horrible days, but this is necessary to accomplish that you can live in me. You can live your life in me. There's no safer place for you than me. I'm doing that, so don't worry about what's coming up in the next three days. Fix your heart on me. I'm coming through. And you have known the way to where I'm going. You know how to get there. I love Thomas. I think just from the little bit we have about him in the New Testament, he seems to have been a very concrete thinker. And it must have been exceptionally hard for Thomas to follow Jesus because Jesus loved metaphor. He loved to, uh, to uh, encode his teaching in parables, in stories. 
And we see in the Gospels that half the time, at least half the time, the disciples never had a clue what Jesus was talking about. Well, this is yet another example of that. And Thomas is, is frustrated. And I think you can sense the frustration. Even though he addresses him as Lord respectfully, he's very much contradicting what Jesus just said. That's not at all what's going on here, Jesus. We have no idea where you're going. How does anybody know the place, uh, the way to get to a place you don't even know where it is? How, how do we know the way where you are going? And Jesus gives them the answer. And again, this is yet another instance in the Gospel of John where Jesus uses those two words in the Greek translation, ego aimi, which uh, was, if you look at the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they had available at that time, was used when God revealed himself to Moses. I am the sacred name of God. The one whose existence is non-contingent. He exists even if nothing else does. I am. I am. And then he has three things to say about himself. I am the way. You know the way to where I'm describing because you know me. Not only do you know me, you have trusted in me. You have put your faith in me. It's very interesting to me that journey is at the heart of God's interaction with humankind. When God first called a people to himself, when he stepped in and grabbed the whole people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt and called them out of Egypt, when he established their, his covenant with them and said, I will be your God, you be my people, and they entered into this relationship, the whole thing began with a journey. A celebration they were to repeat every year. In fact, it was so important, they had to change their calendar. And this now became the first month of the year. You couldn't make the point any more forcefully. Everything starts anew. We get into a relationship, and I'm taking you on a journey. So you celebrate that first Passover fully dressed with your walking stick in hand, ready to head out. Because God takes us on a journey. God is not some thing that's sitting off in a corner for us to philosophize about and speculate about. God is a person who is active in history and in creation and invites us to join him. He's not a thing we talk about. He's a person. And to know Jesus by trusting in him is to be on that journey. To be on the path on the way, on the road to where he's taking us. He is the journey. He says also that he is the truth. That's very different than saying, I'm truthful. A lot of people could say that in some given circumstance. I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I am the truth. And again, the claims Jesus is making are claims to divine reality. He isn't some person like you and me. He is God Almighty. You know why there is such a thing as truth? 
In order for there to be truth, there has to be untruth, right? There has to be something that is false. Who determines that difference? Now, we as human beings argue a lot about this. What constitutes truth? What isn't true? What is true? You know why there is such a thing as truth and falsehood? God. God has so ordered reality that there is a, a, a right and a wrong. We have developed a whole area of human uh, investigation and study we call science that is based ultimately on the fact that God has ordered reality in a way that follows strict patterns. We call them laws of physics. God wove them into reality itself and ensures that they happen just the way they are. So our theories about how we interpret what's going on in reality change because our understanding is always partial. And we're constantly having to revise our scientific hypotheses and our, our assumptions about what constitutes truth. But the reason we can even pursue such a thing as truth is that God has made that distinction. If the world wasn't that way, it'd be uninhabitable. Can you imagine if right now I stepped off the step and instead of going down, I started floating up? If things just didn't follow the patterns they're supposed to, if time didn't follow strict patterns, you couldn't build a bridge. You couldn't calculate uh, stress and uh, weight-bearing and all the things we do every single day. Reality is built on the concept of things follow the true pattern or they don't. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, he's saying much more than I don't lie. He's saying, I'm the reason there's even such a thing as truth. It's because of God that there is even a right or a wrong, a true or a false, that there is such a thing as light and darkness, good and evil. God is the one. We don't decide those things. We get it wrong more than half the time. But there is such a thing as truth. And God is the reason for it. He says, I am the life. Again, the life. Not just I'm alive. And we've talked about this before. Jesus has made it clear already in John's Gospel that he doesn't just cosmetically improve our lives. He doesn't just make our lives a little bit better. He didn't come to be the ultimate life coach so that you could be the best you that you can be. That's not why he's here. He is life. He doesn't just give it. He doesn't just make it better. He is life. To be in him is to be alive. There is no life apart from him. This is again something we can only say of God. Job was aware of this. You know the reason there is such a thing as life in the universe? God. God, by his spirit, has imbued inert matter with something mysterious we call life. 
And it doesn't just happen. God, by his spirit, has breathed life into the universe. Job said this in chapter 34, verses 14 and 15. If God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the life. And basically, he's saying, I am everything you could ever need. Everything. There is no area in which I am lacking. And notice this. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is what we're talking about here, right? This journey to the house of the Father. We want to get there. We want to get to the Father's house. No safer place in the cosmos than to be in the room next to God himself. Who's going to break in there? Who's going to mess with you there? To actually live in the house of God. Jesus says, I'm the only way anybody will ever get there. For some people, this is troubling. Here's the common thing we hear a lot today. That uh, who knows who's right. There are a kajillion religions in the world and a whole many bunches of ways of explaining everything. And all we have to do is pick the one we like the most and uh, as long as we're sincere and devoted, then surely God will honor that. Well, if Jesus is God, that is absolutely not true. Because he said, not, I have come to create a way for you to make it to the Father. I've, cream, I've come to bring a new option for dealing with all of this so that you can be restored back to God the Father. I'm not one more among many. I am the only way. No one gets there unless you come through me. Some say, well, that's kind of exclusive. It is. It's very much exclusive. But here's what Jesus is saying. There is one problem that plagues creation, that plagues the cosmos. Let's call it sin. Wrongness. Things that are not the way they should be. There is one God who oversees everything. Not a bunch of gods. Now we've made up a lot and basically we project our own psyches on the night sky and call that a God. God is much more than that. One God. There is one solution God has come up with to deal with the problem of sin. God said, I will become flesh. I will come into the creation as a creature and I will live my life as a human being and I will give my life as payment for sin. I will take upon myself the debt humanity has incurred by ruining creation. I will pay to fix it. There is one Savior, one King, one kingdom that is eternal. There, there's not a billion of them. There's only one. Now, 
That is why. You know what the marching orders of Jesus to his followers were immediately after he rose from the dead? You go out there and you go to the furthest corners of the world and you tell people about this because everybody needs to know. So Jesus isn't trying to exclude anybody. He's not trying to get anybody and say, no, you're not good enough. It has nothing to do with that. There is one way that Jesus has made available to the whole world. That's why Christians are always getting in trouble because they're constantly trying to tell people about Jesus. And we're trying to spread out throughout the whole world. And we're trying to tell everybody. That's why in every worship service we have, we have some moment where we remember the fact that our mission is the world. That everybody needs to know this. Because it is for everyone. So it's not exclusive in the sense that it's only for a select few. It's exclusive only in the sense that it's the only way. But that way is made available to anyone. God doesn't care what your background is. He doesn't care what you believed before hearing about Jesus. He doesn't care what patterns of religious or philosophical life, even activities that you have engaged in. God doesn't care. Jesus came to bring you to the house of the Father. Every one of us. Jesus said he's our only way to reach God the Father. Our only hope to know truth. Our only chance to know life truly and eternally. How do these claims dispel fear and despair for us? Let's finish verse 7 through 11. <clears throat> if you have known me, you will also know my Father. And from now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus says to him, so much time I have been with you all and you haven't known me, Philip. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words which I speak to you, I do not speak from myself. But the Father who is abiding in me is doing his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if not, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus continues to call his disciples to faith. That's really the key to finding this secure dwelling place the father's house he says if you know me you will know my father wait wait you do know the father you've already seen him and philip is paying he's paying attention he gets that Jesus said, I want to take you to the Father's house. So he says, okay, I'm all in. Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied with that. It's kind of like Moses uh, who said to God, show me your glory, right? Reveal it to me and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus responds, oh, I imagine him sighing, oh my goodness. 
It's like talking to a brick. How do I get it through? I've been with all of you all this time. Philip, don't you get it? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. How much more clearly could Jesus say that he's not some guru, some uh, religious man, some philosopher or teacher, but that he is God himself come to us in the flesh. To gaze upon him is to gaze upon God Almighty. He says you can't separate us out. There is a tremendous mystery and if you try to peer too closely into it your head's going to explode. God is enormous and we are finite. How do you expect a brain like ours to accommodate a full understanding of who God is? But, but Jesus is God come in the flesh and he is in the Father and the Father is in him and to gaze upon Jesus is to gaze upon the Father. They're not two gods. It's the one and the same God. Jesus says, don't you believe, don't you have your faith placed that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that I am God Almighty come to you in the flesh. And he reminds him of something he's been repeating throughout the whole Gospel of John. I'm not just some guy spouting off words that he happens to think up. The words you hear me speak are the words of the Father. When you hear me speak, you are hearing literally the words of God Almighty spoken by a human mouth. The Father who is abiding in me is doing his work. Notice how he switched. The works I speak to you, I do not speak for myself, but the Father who is abiding in me is doing his works. Not just words, but Jesus has not only talked, he has also done amazing things like raising Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days, like walking on water, commanding the waves and the sea, taking five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplying it to feed a multitude of 5,000 plus. He's done the kinds of things that human beings can't do. The kinds of things God can do, not human beings. Everything, just from the words he speaks to the actions he's taken, demonstrate that he is what he says he is. I am God. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Trust me, not as just a human leader. Trust me as God. If for no other reason than the works if you won't take my word for it, then pay attention to the works. Who can command a man who's been dead for four days to rise from the dead? Who can speak life into the dead but God? Who can command the waves and the wind but God? If, it, if you won't just take my word for it, then look at my actions. But believe. I think to this day, people have trusted their lives and their hearts to Jesus because of his words. Sometimes people hear the words of Jesus and something in their soul resonates and says, This isn't just some guy talking, 
This is God reaching out to me. And in their souls, they know it. This isn't just some philosophy or opinion. This is God whispering in my ear, I love you, come to me. And their soul responds to the word. And they believe. Some believe because of the works. They're sitting in some gathering, maybe something similar to this. And something weird happens. And somehow it's like somebody pulls apart the veil and all of a sudden there's God in all his glory. And your soul is utterly transformed by the encounter. It's like a brand on your soul. And you know this wasn't just an emotional experience because after the emotions fade, the brand is still there. You have been altered eternally by the encounter. The works of Christ still call people to faith today. I've had both. I've heard the words of Christ and my soul has sung in response, resonating to the one who gave me the breath of life. God has showed up in my life and interacted with me in ways I know have nothing to do with the people around me or myself. Ways that have altered my life indelibly. Jesus invites us all to the same thing. To put our faith in him. To know the Father. Jesus communicates to us the words and the actions of God the Father. So that in knowing him, we know the Father. How has Jesus brought you to know God? Jesus challenges us to trust ourselves to him. The many things outside our control that are out there, they're they're threatening every single day of our lives. Jesus has come to offer us the safety of a home, a dwelling place with God the Father. What could be safer than living in a room next to God himself? Jesus pointed out that he himself is our way. He is our path to living with God. He is truth. He is life. All that we could ever need is found in him. He's the life we so desperately long to have, abundant and eternal and free. To know him is to know the Father, to be brought into his house, even to be made the house of God, as he will dwell in us by his Holy Spirit. How could our lives be any more secure than when Jesus places us in the very house of God? Faith in Jesus is our only way there. The question is, have you placed your faith in Jesus? We're going to give you a chance to respond to what you've heard. Some of you here today have not trusted your hearts to Jesus. 
I want to invite you to take the leap of faith, to open yourself up and say, Jesus, I don't know where you're going to take me, but I want you to be my way. I want you to take my life and prove to me that you're everything you're promising me this morning that you are. I challenge you to take Jesus up on it. Maybe you already know Jesus and today's been a reminder that if your heart is troubled, it's because you have drifted from your closeness to him. You have forgotten who it is that has rescued you. And you, you want to come this morning and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I strayed. I drifted. I want to fully center myself in you. I want to live in you. Maybe you're here this morning. There's something you want somebody to pray with you about. Something that's troubling you. We have people here to do that as well. Whatever God lays on your heart this morning, this is your chance to respond in some way to his word. We'll have people here on either side. Uh, just come to either side and uh, share with them what God's put on your heart and let them pray with you this morning. Let's all stand. Please come while we have this song.